Welcome to Roadcase, the podcast that explores the live music experience. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Josh Rosenberg, and I'll be taking you on a journey through in-depth interviews with performers and key people in the industry to explore the magic of live music, how it can be totally transformative for both fans and performers, and we'll look at how they take it all out on the road. It's going to be a great ride, so here we go. Okay, welcome back to Roadcase, everybody. This is your host, Josh Rosenberg. I am so psyched to be here for this episode that features an interview I did with Steve Wynn of The Dream Syndicate. I'm so glad that you're here and along for this ride. And I wanted to remind all of you while you're here that we really rely on the support of you uh, amazing listeners. And you can do that in a number of different ways and also get involved in the Roadcase community. And you can do that by following us on the socials. We're at Roadcase Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you want to find out more information about Roadcase, you can visit our website. We're at www.roadcasepod.com. Dot com. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can email us at info at roadcasepod.com. Another great way to support Roadcase is to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platform. So if you're on Spotify, for example, there's a little box that says follow. It's right at the Roadcase homepage. You just click on that. If you're on Apple Podcasts, for example, up in the upper right-hand corner, there's a check mark. You just click on that to subscribe to Roadcase. And doing that on both those platforms as well as other platforms will allow you to receive updates when new episodes come into the world. Another great way to support Roadcase is to rate and review this podcast. So if you're on Spotify, there's a little box underneath that follow box I talked about. It's got couples, it's got like a star on it. Just click on that. Uh, if you're on Apple Podcasts, scroll up a little bit and there's a spot. You'll see a bunch of stars. Click a bunch of those stars and you can leave a review as well. We really rely on the support of you listeners out there to help boost Roadcase and to show your appreciation for the show. It really helps out a lot. And uh, thanks in advance for that. So I'm really happy to have Steve Wynn of the amazing band, The Dream Syndicate, uh, on the show. I was so excited to be able to interview Steve. They're now celebrating the 40th anniversary of their debut album, The Days of Wine and Roses, massively critically acclaimed album throughout all music media at the time, uh, now celebrating the 40th anniversary of that. Uh, Rolling Stone came out with a list of best songs of 1982 from 40 years ago, and the song Halloween from that album was on that list as well, written by Steve Wynn. Uh, and uh, this band just absolutely represented for me that amazing neo-psychedelic, hard rock, but melodic band at the time that really resonated with me when I was graduating from high school, entering college. Uh, at that time, uh, yes, I am that old. Uh, I just had a 40th uh, high school reunion. I did not have the chance to go because it was in Los Angeles and I was elsewhere. But still, uh, that was a long time ago. Steve's been around for quite a while. The Dream Syndicate broke up only a few years after that, produced a couple uh, other Dream Syndicate albums after Days of Wine and 
Roses. But Steve went on to enjoy a really successful solo career for many years and was involved in other projects such as Gutterball and the Baseball Projects. But Days of Wine and Roses will always be his reference point, and he is self-admittedly extremely happy with that. Uh, he's headed off into Europe right now and then coming back to the States for a couple dates, one of which is in Chicago on November 11th at Leakin Hall. So if you are part of my Chicago people out there, I hope to see you at that show. But I'm so happy to have Steve here. Uh, he was really, really fun to talk to. He's been in this business for obviously for such a long time, traveled the world, toured the world. Uh, Dream Syndicate was also initially a part of this really amazing neo-psychedelic movement in Los Angeles and in Southern California and around the country, kind of known as the Paisley Underground with bands, local L.A. bands such as the Bangles, Three O'Clock, Rain Parade, Green on Red, uh, as well as other kind of rockabilly and punk bands uh, coming out at the time, the Blasters and X, namely And uh, they were so instrumental in my own musical development that I was just so elated to have Steve on the show to be able to talk about all this. And he is just an absolutely has an encyclopedic mind for music, uh, has so many different stories about being on the road and is just an amazing uh, reference point. And I wanted to celebrate Steve for being uh, this integral part of the music community and they have a new album out. It's entitled Ultraviolet Battle Hymns and True Confessions. Uh, it's really, really amazing. They're uh, at their shows currently. They are performing sh- songs from the Dream Syndicate from 2017 on in two sets. That's the first set. Second set is full Days of Wine and Roses. So if you have an opportunity to see them, uh, check out, go to Steve's website, uh, the Dream Syndicate's website as well for more information. So excited to have him here and so excited to present this episode to you. Thanks to you uh, so much for being here for this one. And I want to send a really special thank you to Steve Wynn of the Dream Syndicate for being here on this episode of Roadcase. And here we go. Hey, Steve. So great to have you on the show, man. Welcome to Roadcase. (laughs) Thanks, Josh. Good to be here. It's such a delight to have you, dude. I was, uh, as I was telling you, so a lot of 40th anniversary things going out there with people like around my age. I know you're, you're like 60 something, right? 61. 62. Yeah. 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 I'm, um, I'm 58, going to be 59 in a couple months, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, my 40th anniversary from uh, starting college and high school graduation, but it's also, more importantly, um, the 40th anniversary of the Days in Wine and Roses, and uh, which came out in 1982. Um, right. Wow. What is that? Does that, you know, does it, obviously you wanted to reflect on this. Some of your shows, you're playing the whole album. Um, really excited to see on November 11th at Lincoln Hall. What does that 40th anniversary mean to you, especially in the context of this album that's been um, looked at consistently over the years since uh, since you came out with it? Well, it's a lot of years. It's a long span of time. Yeah. It's kind of, kind of surprising because, you know, as people often say about something that happened a long time ago, you remember it well. I remember making that record. I remember starting the band. And in fact, um, this just a couple days ago, maybe you saw it, uh, maybe not, but um, Rolling Stone did a... 100 yes. best songs of 1982 mm-hmm. so that was a fun article to look at and and we are our, our, our song halloween off days of wine and roses made the list was it was on number 28 so that was 
that part of the thing was very it's gratifying to see that people still remember your records and absolutely you know, think highly of them. But also looking at that list brought back so many memories, you know, mm-hmm. um, and not just memories of be, being in the Dream Syndicate making that record, memories of things I was listening to and also friends. I saw, you know, people on the, that list like the Bangles and REM, people and the Minutemen, people we were playing shows with and meeting back then. Yeah. Um, but also on top of that, and this, you know, the, one of the main memories I have of that, that, year is that at the time i was working in a record store a rhino records store very popular hip store in la um you know at the time and since and i was working the counter there actually speaking of chicago side by side every day with nels klein who was my uh, on the day shift with me at rhino wow and yeah that's, i know that's, that's a great connection yeah totally. yeah yeah it's <laughs> kind of funny you know yeah, now, yeah. That, 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 that's a story in itself we can get into that but uh, but when i my job at the store it was it was a you know, it, it was a great store for among other reasons because the owner tried to hire employees who each had their own area of expertise. It wasn't just like here's 15 indie rock guys, but but um, rather it would be one guy who knew all about jazz, one guy who knew all about reggae, and one guy who oh, knew cool. all about country and folk and very specific things. So each person had their area. And I yeah, was yeah. at age 20 when I was hired. I was the underground indie rock, whatever you want to call it at the time. And also um, import independent rock guys. That was my my job there. Mm-hmm. So I look at this list. It made me kind of laugh because yeah, these are all the records I was buying from the store that year and digging and trying and telling other people, hey, you got to check this out. And yeah. I remember, you know, the weird convergence and all that because when when the day Days of Wine and Roses came out, the day it was released, of course I ordered it for the store and. Believe me, I placed it on the top shelf when it came in, it was, uh, <laughs> right. and uh, and and you know, it, and, and it was a weird, enough. it was a weird connect. That that was a, that was kind of that moment when it, you know, when being a fan and being a town crier for this kind of music shifted into being part of it as a musician. And I remember that you know that that it was up there. I remember very well the records by next to it were our biggest sellers at the time were Fear the Record and um, Richard Linda, Linda Thompson. Um, 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 shoot out the lights. They yeah. were all on the top shelf there. So that was kind of funny. So yeah, I mean, forty years it brings back, you know, yeah, a lot of interesting memories. It's, it's funny. It's uh, like yeah, like my yeah. life and like a different life at the same time. Yeah, that's interesting. What does that feel like? Yeah, I just saw um, 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 an uh, interview with David Byrne a couple of days ago. You know, mm-hmm. not, not, to, not to keep hyperlinking this interview to other other stories, but I saw. He, I guess he's got a uh, show he's doing out in Colorado. Um, that I, I've read a little bit about it. And part of the premise is just that, you know, everybody in the play, I think is David Byrne. He's a fictional character and he's, and what he said in this article was he looks back at his life, you know, and I think he's been interested in trying to put across in this play. He looks back on his life and who he was maybe 40, 50 years ago mm-hmm. as almost a different, as a different person. It's like, you know, he knows mm-hmm. that person was, but he said over the course of your life change and you might not, always be now of course i look back at me at 22 making days one roses and i remember what we had for dinner i remember what time i got to the studio i remember little details but so much has happened since then so it's kind of also like this distant thing this is this this kid i look at and say man you have no idea what's coming <laughs> yeah that's right yeah you kind of look at that and sort of like yeah 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 um yeah, it ha- I mean, it happens in everybody's life. It happens just of things, you know? I mean, my stupid high school graduation or starting UC Santa Barbara that year, you know, that was, y- you didn't really know, but then you have that added 
um, that added element of creating that amazing work of art. And so many people have talked about it and it still gets talked about it and it's still in the public, um, in the, in the, the public mind frame, so to speak, you know, in the yeah. zeitgeist of the public. And, um, uh, clearly that's had, has, has that had a positive impact on you throughout the years? Were there some times when you were like, oh, well, you know, what, what is going on? Like, what's, what's, what's the feeling? I mean, I know it was interesting when I read, like you, you told me that you, um, you know, uh, Dream Syndicate went away after what, what was it? 1988 or mm -hmm. something like that. But you told you, yeah. you, I read a quote. It said, in fact, it's in your bio. I wanted to be a band. I, I wanted to be in, a, be in a band that broke up while, while we were still doing our best work. I mean, who wouldn't is want that to kind be of a, a well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that like not everybody does that? Was that a conscious decision at the time, or is that kind of just like looking back and that's that's sort of a um, a kind of romantic thing to say? It's a romantic thing to say, and you know, I mean, of course, it's true. I didn't want to. If the if the, the alternatives being in a band that got worse and worse and worse sort of petered out, nobody wants to be in that band. <laughs> But right. but there was more to, there was more to it than that. I mean, well, it didn't time, have to be that way, right? I mean, yeah. was it something that you felt that Days and Wine and Roses, which is just so groundbreaking and just such a smash hit, that you felt like you couldn't surpass that? No, not at all. In okay. fact, that's, I you know, it, and we had you know when Medicine Show, our second album, came out. Yeah. In in Europe, it was almost like our debut album because because Days and Wine and Roses had really only trickled over to a handful of music fans over there. It wasn't like in the States where it really was kind of a, it was kind of a weird little sensation in some way. Over there, when Medicine Show came, that was the first time people were aware of us and people mm. went, oh my God, this is the greatest record. This can't be surpassed. So I think right away it gave me some type of, some type of you know, perspective to things that, you know, different people have different ways relating to different things you do at different times in your life. So I, it right. wasn't, so, it was, so, so days of wine rose was never an albatross, was never an annoyance, never a thing that had to be, you know, not talked about or avoided. Never, not for a day. The reason we broke up the first time around was simply that it, well, for one thing, it felt like we were just exhausted. We'd done this for seven years at that point and mm. weren't sure where to go next with it. And the, I was 20 years old. I'd been, it's weird looking back at this now, but at that point in my life, my entire adult life, short adult life compared to now, yeah. my entire adult life at that point had been as a member of the Dream Syndicate. I just mm. wanted to do other, I wanted to do something else. So it was really that. You know, it's funny because you're saying that, you know, people will ask about that Days of Wine and Roses right. and also about things like the Paisley Underground, the music movement we were involved in. And yeah. they say, oh, you must, you must be tired of talking about this. I say, no, no, because they're really... They're good memories, and they're things I look back on fondly, not like, oh, my God, I wish I could do that again now because it would be so much better now. I'm not, it's not like that at all. They're, right. they were, um, they're good. They're, well, some they're, people that are we, coming we nailed in. It. Yeah, if people are coming into this interview new to the Dreams again and new to, to you, Steve, uh, you're, the solo albums that you put out slightly after Dream Syndicate kind of officially broke up, sort of, uh, you know, 1990 to 2010 timeframe that you put out under your own name, um, you know, in addition to your other work with Gutterball and the Baseball Project and, and others were just, were just amazing. And um, so, you know, the, 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 it didn't just end with Dream Syndicate for those that are, so for those listeners that are uh, kind of wondering about that. <laughs> Thanks for saying that. And yeah, I'm proud of, you know, I've made now, but I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I forget 35, 40 albums, studio albums. And I got to say, and I did, and 
this is really true. I like them all. There are, there are none that I would like to sweep under the rug or forget about. I think I've just, mm. you know, the thing that I've, I'm glad I've been able to kind of keep making records, keeping that's really all that I wanted from the start was just to make music, to, to go into studios, to be creative and to have, I don't know, you, you want people to pay attention. I mean, if, if you, if you made records on your, you know, your, you're on, on pro tools in your, in your, in your spare bedroom, you could make a dozen of those a day and say, well, that's nice, but it's nice when there's some sort of, I don't know, context or environment where people are checking out what you do. I guess that, that's part of the fun. Yeah. But having said that, you know, there, there, some, some of those records you name were written about a lot. Some were, you know, had involved bands went on tour and played to a lot of people. Mm. Some of them were records where just, a handful of people heard them and said, yeah, I like that. Now onto the next one. And that's great. That's never been a problem. I will say, like we've been talking about, the Days of Wine and Roses will always be, you know, I guess for me, a reference point. You know, if, if something is written about what I've done, that will be one of the first things that comes up. And that's fine. That's great. Yeah. Um, and I think and I think it's funny. And maybe, you know, that that record was made in one night. It's, a, it's you know, really a one-night recording. No kidding. And no kidding. I did not yeah, know we, it, Holy shit, dude. Not just, yeah, midnight to eight when the rates were cheap. We went in and we knocked it out and spent in the next couple studio? days. I will say, uh, it was a place called Quad Tech in East Hollywood, kind of on the eastern end of Hollywood. Um, mm-hmm. And it's gone It's gone now. It was at, um, but Slash Records, the label that put out our records. Yeah. They had some kind of crazy deal with this studio that I've never heard of since you know where they could get their bands in from midnight to eight and get a better rate i mean i don't know that's that's wild you know you just don't have that now i don't think studios do that now but i mean there were better drugs back then or just people <laughs> were younger were younger and, and drank more wild and whatever it was they and the um they put us in there with this um with the band and our producer christy was worked for the label and was was and is a great musician in his own right but they put us in there with an engineer named um, name, name, um, 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 Pat Burnett, who was the son and nephew of the members of the um, of the uh, um, Johnny Burnett trio. You know, did Train Kept the Rolling and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. He was an heir to that family. He's also, I think, brother of, um, of um, well, I forget the guy's name, but a Burnett who ended up in Fleetwood Mac. So it's like a very musical oh, family. And he was yeah. he was the, he was the engineer at the studio and a great engineer. I don't know where he is now, but he was a great engineer. Mm. And basically, the Slash would stick their bands, whether it was the Gun Club or probably X or the Blasters. Yeah, they're when they're starting out, they stick them in the studio at midnight, get going, start, you know, bang, and you know. And in the case of the Dream Syndicate, we all had day jobs at the time, so it was you know, right. record till eight, dust yourself off, and get to work. Wow. Wow. It was such a heady time in Los Angeles at the time. And um, there's so many comparisons of this album to Velvet Underground and um, Lou Reed, others. Um, I would assume, does that get tiresome after a while to be compared? It was sort of funny. I mean, I know that you've got a goofy sense of humor in a very glib way. And you said, well, they said this is the best replication of the Velvet Underground. You're like, well, it was I think you'd said at the time something like, well, it's good to be the best at something. <laughs> I saw that. That's funny. I forgot that. So that, that's funny. You know, it's funny because what, what you said, you said about, you know, being tired of, of certain things that I've done, tired of talking about Days of Wine and Roses or whatever. No, but at the time, man, yeah, I, got time. So, I, got, I got so sick of talking about the Velvet Underground. It's I funny because I, 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 I really, and by the way, since then, I look back now and say, yeah, that was actually kind of a very flattering thing to be compared to a band that so many people loved and bear in mind in 1982 and maybe you remember this but 1982 the velvet underground were not the universally known and loved 
touchstone that they are today. At that I time, went they back were at that time when I was working at KCSB, the radio station. I went back to Velvet Underground because of Days of Wine and Roses. Good. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, Hooray. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. So thank you for that. And in that context, for somebody like me, who was just a couple of years younger than you, it is still a couple of years younger than you, you know, mm-hmm. at the time, um, my own musical development was such that, you know, I, I didn't catch the early classic rock 70s. And obviously, I missed the early 60s days of that really being the scene at the time. But to have these bands with what you call what, what's been called now, in retrospect, I forget if they said this at the time was the Paisley Underground with all the neo psychedelic bands and some of the, the punk bands and uh, rockabilly bands X and blasters that you already mentioned at the time. Dream Synergy gave me that anchor to what can happen now when people have the touchstones that I had um, and they're playing their own music. And that's that was really the heart of the matter for me. And that, that's why Dream Syndicate's played such an important part of my own musical development. And, and that's why Dream Syndicate played such an important part in the music industry and especially in Los Angeles at the time. I mean, I'm telling you things that you already know, but... Um, just to put that out there, uh, what was it like at the time um, being a part of that group and being a part of uh, that particular L.A. scene for you, from your perspective? Well, before we get to that, finish on the on the thing. That, 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 yeah, yeah, know, yeah. Because what you just said about we were, you know, that we were a connection for you to these, this other music, that's, you know, something – well, it still happens today. It still happens always been, all the time and, in different ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I look at my Krong band well, like a lot, and they're turning mm. people on to all kinds of music. You know, they're they're crate diggers. And a lot of my favorite bands – and by the way, you could say this about the Beatles and the Stones were at the top or at the bat. They're bands who love their record collection and want you to know about it. Yeah, and, yeah. Know, Did you just, say w- crate, you just said crate diggers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love yeah, that nice, phrase. Nice, yeah, but, I do too. But, you know, <laughs> but, but, you know, but, you know, I mean, the Beatles are crate diggers. The Stones are crate diggers. Bob Dylan was a crate digger, Um, you know, and and so, and we were as well. When people say, oh, I don't want to, I don't listen to music because I don't want to be influenced. Like, my God, all the best ones, I'm sure, for all I know, you know, Mozart and Beethoven were crate diggers in their own time as well. You you want <laughs> to be, you, you want to you be not only aware of other music being made, but you also want to be excited about it. And, you know, I look back now on Beatles records and you can just tell they're just going bonkers at how much they love the Motown records are coming out at the same time. Mm-hmm. They want you to hear it. They, they, they want you to hear it at the same time they do. And, and I think we had some of that as well. The thing that bothered me about the Velvets thing wasn't that we were being compared to the Velvets and rightfully so. It's that I thought music critics at the time were very lazy to only single on this one thing. And as I would say at the time, Hey, we're not stripping off the velvets. We're ripping off everybody. Come on, get with it. We were, we were, <laughs> right. we were don't we, sell it we, short. Listen, you know, <laughs> listen to the record. We were ripping off the fall like crazy. Were my favorite bands at the time. Mm. We were ripping. We were ripping off um, um, Black Flag, Damaged, and some Carl was doing. We were ripping. You know, just go song by song, and I'll tell you who it was. So I just felt I would get annoyed because I think you're taking the easiest way out here and not really paying attention. And I would expect more of anybody who writes about music or, or or tells people about music for a living or even for a hobby. So that that was I would get rankled about that at the time to the point where I did really obnoxious things. I went on to, you know, I mean if you listen to the medicine show, there's a couple times where I will quote I quote a Elvis lyric on that record just to be annoying. And you know, that's that's <laughs> just silly. Put, that's just to put fuel that, on the fire. Yeah, and that's cocky twenty three year old nonsense. You know, and I I don't I, I, I don't I don't look back fondly on that, but I felt like you know I, that was the one thing of all the things at the time. It would get my, you know, get my nerves. Like, oh, please, not the Velvets again. Now, I'm cool with it. 
But okay, that was the other question. Yeah. I, thought, I had I had to add that right there because it was a funny thing. At the I time appreciate I that, man. Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So like the the Paisley Underground and what was going on at the time was there a lot of was there some collaboration between the bands and what was it like from your perspective? Well, the LA scene at the time, you know, I think that the reason our little scene came out and for your listeners who don't know, Paisley Underground were bands like ourselves and the Bangs who became the Bangles and the the Salvation Army who became Three O'clock and Rain Parade. Uh, and then green on red and long riders we all had a little movement and a lot of what that movement really came from was the fact that we were young and we were outsiders we weren't we weren't in the hip groovy la world so you know things like the things that seemed ages older than us like the blaster and x when in fact they were probably two years older than us you know oh, yeah. um, but but that was the, that was the old guard to us and we didn't know them we didn't do shows with them we weren't recognized by them at the very beginning so we found each other and built our own little scene, which very quickly was picked up on by the people I just named. In fact, John Doe was one of the earliest supporters of our music. So was um, nice. Mike Watt from Minutemen. So was mm-hmm. um, people like Stan Ridgeway from Mall of Band. The once people, those, those, the, those the, old, the old guys, those 24-year-olds to my 22, once they heard us, they, they liked us. But we really formed a scene because we couldn't get shows with anybody else. So you'd see all these shows week after week with the dream syndicate, the bangs and the Salvation Army again and again, because, well, that's what we had. So that, yeah. that was, yeah, I was, that, I was, that's yeah. Happened. yeah, I mean, I wish I had gone to a, a lot more of those shows. Um, I was up at UCSB at the time as a student and, uh, uh, which for those that don't know, it's about an hour and a half North of LA. Um, but I yeah. did see dream syndicate. I, I forget if it was, I told you it was like, before we came on the air, it was 82 or 83 time frame at the pub, at in the student center at UCSB, which was mm. which was crazy at the time. Um, you guys just it was a, cra- it was a crazy tore, venue or crazy tore it down. I mean, well, I mean, oh. not 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 too many great bands came through and played the pub. This was like this was it. This was a big event for that. That's good to hear. I remember, and it was early '83. I remember it well. It, it was, okay, yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, I thought. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, and then I saw you at the Goleta Valley Community Center. I don't know if that happened shortly thereafter, probably where they pulled the plug on you for time and you guys continued to play somehow. I don't exactly remember how. It's a little, <laughs> it's a little cloudy, my memory. Do you remember that at all? You said, Yeah, I do. And I can't remember where that happened, but you know, we would get, we, we would get the plug pulled on us regularly, not for time, for volume, for feedback. It was amazing. <laughs> you know, it, it's easy to look back, you know, on a time. And I mean, it's, okay. It's the reason we were popular in some ways because we 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 made we were dividing line for people saying, and we 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 drew the line ourselves saying you're either on our side of the fence or on the other side. There's no in between. We we would we it, even for when people liked our band, you know, we would antagonize them in some way. You know, if if you if you didn't like us or know about us, we play feedback until your ears split open to see if you could stand it. If you did like us, we'd cover a Brian Adams song, you know, in our set just to, just to say, you don't know us. We're not your monkey. I mean, we, these are all things that sound like fun and romantic. We were also just, we were antagonistic and cantankerous to an extreme back in those days. But that's that we felt like we were on a mission. We felt like we were on some kind of weird mission yeah. and we would go to places like we'd go to places like, you know, it's one thing to be on that kind of a mission in a art gallery in hollywood where there are hipsters surrounded by hipsters and be another thing to go to i'm not saying that goleta was this way but to go out of town and play noise and feedback where they just didn't know about bands or that kind of thing they say no this you can't you can't do that here but we did 
Yeah, well, I mean, in the defense of the band, the noise and feedback also had your amazing melodic uh, the songwriting and lyrics underneath, or even uh, the feedback was underneath the lyrics, which made it extremely beautiful and compelling from my own perspective. Um, it's, a com- it's a combination. It's, you know, the Velvets did as well. Yeah. And, and bands, at the time, that was an unusual combination. Back then, you were either a pop band or a noise band, for example. And you know, we picked up, I guess, on that, yeah, more than anything the velvets yeah. Yeah. yeah and now it's a lot more common and since you, know, you hear what well, you hear all the time now right. with them right. a lot of indie bands but it was an unusual thing back then and what became a carl Prakota? um i i haven't, I haven't spoken to carl in about 30 years and mm-hmm. um, just sadly but um he's a i know he's a professor he's dr Prakota, teaching theater arts down in virginia nice and i think doing well with whatever he's doing not involved right. in music and as far as i know not wanting to even associate himself with the memory of what he did so that's that's about as much i can say about that but hopefully he's happy and and, uh, was was there some sort of there was a breakup of that he left the band pretty early what happened was at the the, you know after doing our first two albums we did uh days one roses a medicine show and the year the medicine show came out was a pretty heady year we were signed to a&m records we'd gone from recording you know on my own label for a a record that cost a hundred bucks to being on a major label that was putting us on tour buses and opening for REM for two months across the U.S. And after that whole experience, after that very sudden, exciting, but also kind of heavy ride from, you know, you know, from, from nothing to pretty big heights for us anyway. um, We just, it just overwhelmed us. I think we were, you know, we were just kind of hit a point where we, I don't know, tired, frustrated, um, um, little things annoyed each, uh, us about each other, whatever it was, it's all the things that happened to bands at the end of 84. I was the one who kind of initiated this, but just seemed like this is it. We're done. We got to stop now because, um, you know, this is killing us. We're not, it's not fun anymore. And we broke up initially at, at that point and Carl and Carl and I stopped playing music together. And a few months later, I kind of missed playing with the two members of the band who I, still really liked a lot. And that was Dennis Duck and Mark Walton, who's still in the band today. Yeah. And we started, we started playing together again after the, after we, after having broken up and said, you know what? We actually do like playing together and we like each other. And I know um, it's not with that other guy, but let's keep this going. And that's what happened. Mm, interesting. Yeah. It can really just, it can really grind you down at the time. Have you felt, was that grind also have to having to do with sort of media pressure and pressure you guys put on your own self because of the popularity and success of those first two albums? Or is that something that comes upon you uh, from time to time when you're touring quite a bit around the world, which you've done as a solo artist and you've, you've ex- toured extensively playing hundreds of shows a year uh, throughout the world. Um, is that something that just occurred then? Was that a unique experience for you to kind of be grind- grinded down or, have you either learned to manage it or has that pressure just not kind of reared its ugly head since then? Well, I've learned to manage all these things much better than I could back then. So it was like, a factor of a little bit of youth at the time. Yeah, youth, exactly, of youth. You know, I mean, one of the best bits of advice I ever got was from my friend, I'm Sid Griffin of The Long Riders. And mm-hmm. he once said, just like, and, I, and I think I've heard Bob Mould say the same thing too. And I would tell other people as well, don't make any major decisions within a week or two of a tour. Don't come home from a tour and break up your band, don't come home from tour and, you know, move, whatever it is, 
anything you think you want to do. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Get get into bed with some magazines and take out and just, you know, (laughs) binge watch a TV show and don't, don't make big life decisions because that's being on tour is is a, is a, you know, I always, I I wish everybody could do it for a week in their life because it's fun. It's really fun. And that's why I do it 40 years later, but it's also a type of exhaustion that, you know, apart from being in the Marines or certain other jobs, you don't often experience where you're not sleeping, not eating that well. And you're, and you're going to a different town every day and you're having the time of your life and you're doing what you love, but you're still, you know, especially on a long tour, which I don't do any more tours like that, but on a two or three month tour, Mm. by the end, you're pretty ragged. You're pretty just like, you're going like, you know, uh, uh, on fumes where you're, you're on stage every night and you give it all you got, but that's all you got. Yeah. And, um, and this is not some kind of Bob Steger turn the page kind of kind of you know complaining. I love the life, but it, yeah, I think I think back in those days or a couple of times I came back from a tour, and someone said, "Oh my God, you know everything has got to change right now." Yeah, I know better now. When I come back from a tour, I know whatever I think has to change can wait a week or two. Right. Tuck yourself into bed, watch Netflix. Tuck yourself into bed. Of, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But we didn't. We didn't have Netflix back then. There you go. If we would have had it, that would have been, <laughs> wouldn't have broken up. Yeah. Oh damn! <laughs> that's all we need. It's all we need. It could have been something. I mean, we did have books, Steve. If you do remember, Coach. people were yeah, page turners yeah, yeah. at the time. <laughs> my eyes were gla- my eyes were glazed over by the tour at that point. That wouldn't have worked. Yeah, no, that was I was an avid reader, but but you know, and and I think the thing you all said a big thing was youth. You know, it's and I've seen this, you know, with bands. Well, over before us and since we since that time, um, where you get a lot of attention very quickly. Look at Nirvana is a very good case of this. Mm. You get a lot of attention very quickly and it's, and it's everything you ever wanted. You know, you've, 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 you've written songs and played in your basement and, 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 you know, and imagined being in the same universe as your favorite recording artist. And there you are, it's happened. You, you, you hit the jackpot, you won the lottery, you're suddenly living that dream. But at the same time you get, um, anxious about it you get mm-hmm. you get a little frustrated by it and little things start to get to you and i think a lot of it and it's different for everybody i think a lot of it is now that you're there now that you're getting the attention yeah. can you live up to it were you are you deserving of it are people crazy for loving you as much as they say they do i don't feel that way anymore when somebody now says to me hey great show or god i love that new album I say hey thank you glad glad it um glad glad you're digging it because we did too but yeah. at that time you'd have all kinds of mixed emotions about things and and that's why you know when you're young you you make um sometimes bad decisions or sometimes you you don't have the perspective you need and i think i think when i was 23 and uh, you know the, not to pick people like for example with carl Picotta you're talking about mm-hmm. if if somebody said i just love carl Picotta's playing my first thought would be well what's wrong with me i wrote a good song didn't i and you know and and, and uh, that's youth now, when somebody says to me, "I love Jason Victor, our, our current guitarist," yeah, and so, and then something people often do say is, "Great show," but Jason stole the show. I say, "Isn't that great? He's fantastic." I yeah, love. Right. I can't. I can't stop watching him. I love. Yeah. Him. Well, you the mature. I mean? Yeah, the mature uh, direction is. Well, I hired him. I know how great he is. <laughs> <laughs> That's, you're right. That's great. <laughs> way to take it. Way to take it back. <laughs> yeah, you're like, yeah, no shit, dude. He's great. Yeah, That's why yeah, he's in the yeah, fucking right. band. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, youth is a blessing and a curse, man. I mean, you know, you have the energy to travel around the world, but it's hard to process mentally from from a lot of perspectives. And then there's even additional challenges as you get older as well, I would assume. Touring sure. is difficult, and, and, man. I talked to tons of artists on this show and like 
it's just, you know, it's, it's a grind and it's, um, you know, how to the managing it. And one of the things that does come up is the dumb shit things that some people some sometimes say at the merch table and like how not to take that personally. And it occurs oh, on so many different yeah, levels. Yeah. Yeah. That's fortunately doesn't happen too often. <laughs> yeah. People are mostly nice there, but yeah, no, it's absolutely. Sort of no, no, I mean, you know, the things yeah. that are said that can be misconstrued. Yeah. Or, or when you play a show as you do, where it's just like you got there and Thank you for having your best night, and the response from the audience is just dead. You know, which, yeah. And, the, and you and and you, yeah, you say, well, that's that, you know, and and this is actually this is my favorite one thing I think I love maybe most about touring is that no matter what happened, no yeah. matter what you did, no matter what the reaction was, no matter what the person said at the merch table, you do it again the next night, and it'll be a better night. So that's great. A lot of it has to do with one's own mindset at the time, really. It's sort of just like managing your own life. I mean, things can hit in certain ways, but if you really have a handle on who you are and just kind of stay centered in your own body and try to stay out of your head, that helps a lot. That's kind of like yeah. everything. <laughs> like everything. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That is sort of everything. I mean, that's, that's sort of the way I try to live my life. I don't say, I'm not saying that I succeed in doing that, but that's an important factor in staying sane. And you've, you know, you're in a lot of different environments globally um, and have been for the better part of this last 40 years as a touring artist. It's just, it's amazing. Is there one, is there a country that stands out that's, um, I mean, they, they've, that, that you really love. I mean, they've embraced you massively in Europe. And you're you're going yeah. there um pretty sh you're going there shortly aren't you in a couple of weeks yeah a couple yeah. days actually yeah, a couple yeah. Of days okay yeah 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 I've been touring Europe kind of on regular well states too but Europe nonstop since '84 when I first went there uh, with the band I never I had never been to Europe before in my life let alone play music there and '84 mm. is all and it, you know it, it it's funny if I, it, when we on A and M at one point um, the person assigned us said look we have a certain amount of money in the budget for promotion. Um, we can give you two options. You either um, we'll make a big fancy video for to get on MTV, or or um, or we'll give you tour support for a European tour. And forever, I'm so grateful. I said, I'll take the European tour. Largely, yeah. it was and it, it wasn't a career decision. It was like I want to go to Europe. I've never been there. So you know, we did that, and that we went over to Europe and played there at a time when not many bands like us would play over there. Um, you know, and by bands like us, I mean underground. Indie, noisy, weird, whatever you want to call us. It was still mm. a new thing. And, and most bands, anything like us, would go there, would typically go and play London and Amsterdam and go home. You know, like, and we really dug in. Right. And yeah. we were the we we are the band that would go anywhere. We would play 20 shows in Italy and 20 more in Norway and say, sure, bring it on. And I think that served me well till this day. So it's, I've had a so as far as a favorite favorite place like when you brought up, I kind of like them all in different ways. Mm. And I and and you know, and I always think it's kind of funny. The typical thing people say is, "Well, you know," and they'll ask, they'll ask you this when you're over there. Even they'll say, "Well, how do you think German audiences are different from Norwegian audiences, or from American audiences, or from Spanish audiences?" Mm. And I would say, you know what? Every audience is different. This is this is not me being diplomatic and then or whatever, but yeah, I say yeah. every audience is different night to night. An audience hey, in Chicago, an audience at Chuba's is different from an audience at the hideout, which is different than the ends of the Aragon. It's like on, and they're different on a Friday than they are on Monday. It's like everything factors into that. Yeah. So I don't like cultural differences. Yeah. From place there to are, place. There, there are. And, Less, I, and, I'd be, yeah. and I'd be silly not to recognize that. I mean, I know we're starting our tour in Spain and Spain is wild. Spain, you know, you're starting um, the shows that starts at 2 a.m. or something. <laughs> well, see, that's changed. I, ju I just this morning looked at our tour schedule for Spain. I saw they're all nine nine thirty. So the things so it's a pre it's like a pre dinner show. Is it essentially? Uh, well, 
It is. That's the funny thing you say that. I think a lot of these earlier shows in Spain these days is like, go see the band line, get out at 1130 and go to dinner. Right. Oh my God. It's crazy and over I'm, there. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was talking to Eli Thompson last night in the, who's on Father John Misty's band. Um, mm. And he, um, you know, he was talking, you know, I asked him, they're, they're headed to Europe. They're pretty well, um, they're well liked over in Japan. And uh, he was talking just about the cultural differences in a, with the Japanese audience, how they're very hushed and quiet and they kind of rock intensely, but in their own very small space mm-hmm. in, individually. So there are, those kind of differences are interesting, but they really do reflect the broader cultural differences from country to country, I think. You're right. And yeah. me, me, I, I, so use, I, so I much like to say, yeah, it depends on, you know, the night, but, but you're right. There are certain things. And I know, for example, German audiences um, are maybe more reserved, but they you know, again, not to say every person in Germany is this way is really insulting and not true. But to in, in general, well, the audiences there will listen to everything you do more intently than anybody anywhere else. If you, if you know, I've had experiences where I've been singing a song, and as singer, as as will happen to singers, I'll mix up my lines or I'll sing the wrong line in the second verse and the third uh-huh. verse. Hopefully, not too often, but now and then, yeah. now and then, I'll get one, I'll get one word wrong, or I'll blank out when I get to the third line, of the yeah. third verse. And I do the best I can. And I swear, after the show, someone will say, why did you choose to change that line that way that time? <laughs> they go, oh, my God. No, it meant, it meant nothing. I, I had my brain flipped out for a second. <laughs> right, right. Um, wow. So, uh, yeah, we're so we're so we're kind of right now. You guys have put out a new album, uh, Ultraviolet Hymns and True Confessions. And um, that's out anywhere. People can listen to that. Um just another amazing album, Steve. Uh, this oh, is Dream, Dream Syndicate, of course. Um, I can't wait to see your show in Lincoln Hall on November 11th. Really looking forward to that. Um, yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that album and um, and where you're sort of headed with the band. And I might add also that you're doing special shows, two sets. First set is just is Dream Syndicate. Second set is a full Days, days of Wine and Roses. So. Actually, more specifically, the first set is all songs from our last four albums since we reunited. Right. And okay. I love and I and I love this format because we were doing we, we come out so all all the all the songs in the first set will be from uh, we made four albums the last five years right and then newer Dream and, Syndicate quote unquote twenty seven exactly forward twenty first twenty first century Dream Syndicate you know there you go and 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 I love this format because I'm really honestly very proud of the fact that we not only reunited like lots of bands do but I think we've made in, in kind of a and and kind of a, a balanced um, numerically parallel thing, as many records now in the last five years as we made in the eighties. Yeah, and and they're, I think, and I think as verified, thankfully by fans and and critics, blah blah. They're really as good as the four we made back then, and they're and not only that, but I think they're their own kind of thing. I think these four records are their own. You know, they still feel like Dream Syndicate records. They're still true to who we were and who we set out to be when we started but they are their own beast and they stay and they work well together. So it's fun to play just that material for an hour before we scurry away for a short break and play the, the old classic. So right. it's, good, it's good format. So no, no I medicine, mean, no medicine show then. No, not so this time. Yes. People okay. come to the shows looking for songs off medicine show or out of the gray or um, ghost stories. We'll have to wait next time we come around, but, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the other five records are all in play. Um, I will say though, I, I, I now, see, bear in mind, I'm a guy who will, my 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 guilty pleasure website is this website called setlist.com, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, obviously, you know that I, I look at that way too much. I, I love looking at that, and I, and when I go to see a band play, I'm the guy who books the set list before I go. So <laughs> I know always a lot on of that set list. I'm a big jam okay. bands fan, so yeah, I go oh, to those all the time yeah. and like want to know. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've added That's, to it as well. Sometimes if I write it down, sometimes I write the set list down. Sometimes it's just distracting for me when I'm watching a show. I understand. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I, but a lot of people don't want to know. So I, so for me to sit here and say. We're going to play off these albums, not those albums. I shouldn't say too much, but uh, I, I will say it's a, it's a good, it's a good. Co- co- oh, I see. Curious. You think that you feel yeah. like you might be spoiling it somehow. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to do that. All right. Well, you already <laughs> did that when you said it's just the, for the last five albums and then Days of Wine and Roses. I picked up on that immediately. So no medicine show, but okay. But I, I, it's, I, I, not, it's I, I, not spoiling I, I, at all. No one's coming just for medicine show songs. They're coming for Dream Syndicate. They're coming for you. They're coming for the band. I say I'm going to do it right now because I'm, I'm going to do what I wasn't going to do. We, we made an album two years ago called the universe inside, which is mm. one of my favorite things we've done. It's fantastic. We're not really, t- not really touching that record either because it's kind of stands up on its own. So, so to say we're playing, we're playing mostly at the other recent albums, but that records that saving that one for a later date as well. So, you know, we're just, just taking out, taking out, they're all from four records. I, I really, I, I really, you know, I'm really happy with the new record and what we've done in the last few years. I think just, it's not an easy thing to do. And I think that, um, as a music fan, as kind of, you know, like you are, I know, uh, as we follow things pretty intensely, I can't think of a lot of bands that reunited and managed to make, I don't know, records that, that were really good and, and true to what the band was. And I'm, I don't mean to say this in a boastful way. It sounds like I am, but I am proud of it. But as a fan, as a music, I know Wired, for example, did a good job of it. And, um, you know, and, and uh, but can you name any others? Are, I'm thinking I yeah. can't, it's just like coming back in a, in a relevant, timely fashion and not leaning on this massive album that you created 40 years ago. Um, and I really respect that, especially in your solo work, Steve. Um, you know, if there's listeners out there that want to know what Steve wins all about, I mean, listen to days of wine and roses, but the solo albums are spectacular. Your songwriting is timeless and amazingly compelling. I'd have to say not to kind of put you on the spot with a bunch of gushing, but I just <laughs> do want, I do want, do want to say that because it is relevant because you know, there are the, the scenario that I see of dream syndicate and kind of looking at the timeline, sort of just backing off and looking at it from a 30,000 foot perspective i'd be hard pressed to find another band that's done that with as much success and as much grace as you have um to answer your question and by the way by the way i wasn't fishing but i'll talk okay yeah yeah bring it but you were but but bring it on josh yeah 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 exactly the the reason we didn't the reason we didn't the reason there wasn't a dream syndicate for what 23 years at that period was was that i was doing fine on my own i was making solo records and having the ball i was doing side project like Gutterball or records I made in Spain, a couple of those, and, and even starting to dive into the baseball project. I had things going on that I was really enjoying. So I didn't feel the need for the Dream Syndicate because, yeah, it was all just fine. Once we reunited, I have to say, I have to admit, it's been 10 years now, 10 years this month as we reunited. Mm-hmm. Once that happened, I felt this kind of, really honestly, this, this personal mission to kind of rewrite our own history. There were things about what we did back in the 80s, how we broke up, things Mm. Certain little things that frustrate me, the way the story ended, I don't know. And I felt the need to properly retell the story. And I think we've done that. And at times, now that I look back on the last 10 years, at the expense of other things. I haven't done a solo record in 10 years, which I really want to do now. Um, 
I just finished being part of the new baseball project records. We had made a record in eight years, um, seven or eight years. So I'm kind of excited now to get other things going, but the difference between now and 1988, when I was a 20-year-old kid saying, I'm sick of this, I got to throw this all away and start fresh, is that nothing's going to break up anymore. You, I think you, I think you really can't break up anything when you're 62 years old. It's like everything you've done stays with you, and and, um, and I think the the dream syndicate will always be, no matter what we're doing in any given year, will always be a band, a thing that exists, whatever that means. Yeah, and conversely, during your solo career, um, the the member the pri- the members of the prior iteration of Dream Syndicate, um, for lack of a better characterization they they went off and did their own thing and you decided you were just going to go on your own solo path you didn't did you really kind of press that issue at that time or were you happy just recording under your own name at that time and doing your own thing obviously you were happy at that at that but what was what did that transition for you kind of look like at the time and what was going through your head well it, it was just i wanted to do different things i want to play i wanted to play different kinds of music you know uh-huh. you know you know and i you know i had been it's funny because i had been you know in this guitar rock band and i wanted suddenly i wanted to play with strings with horns with keyboards with other styles of music with ballads with things in different types of signatures and different you know all these different things and so i i got that out of my system big time mm. on my first three solo albums so i, I made um albums called kerosene man and dazzling display which are all, all over the map but after a few years of that i kind of quickly circled back to what i do what i've done since then was mostly playing in bands to had two guitars, bass, and drums. Like Lou Reed would always say, it is the magic formula for 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 a rock and roll band. So yeah. I, I I did, but for for that period period um after the Dream Snicket broke up, I did want to um try everything because you know probably like yourself, it's like your record collection has a lot of different styles and you like everything, and that's always the tricky thing is is just because you like something does that mean you should be playing it who knows you know right. but i at that moment in time i wanted to play everything i liked everything all at once and um and it was it was fun that every you wanted to play everything you liked all at once talk about that a little bit like it gave you the freedom because you didn't have to answer to anybody else really and kind of you were just sort of you could go down your own road without any and just sort of explore that without having to rationalize it to anybody else for example yeah not having to answer anybody else not having to rationalize anybody else but also I could play with, you know, other, with people who played other instruments, you know, I mean, I, mm. it didn't have to all be done with a guitar band if I right. wanted to. And luckily I, I was on a label, Rhino Records, um, who gave me a decent budget to work with. So I could say, let's, let's, let's hire this, you know, violinist who played in a prog band from the seventies. He'll know something to do. And I'll just bring in this, you know, this sax player, you know, Los Lobos, you know, and things like that. You know, I could do things like that. It was the kid in the candy store type thing. And it was fun. It was something I hadn't had. Um, you know, I was like, you know, I was as it, to, to use the relationship analogy, I was playing the field. I was back out there. I was on, I was on musical Tinder. I was, I was, I was <laughs> <laughs> just picking up partners as you go to each yeah, exactly, seeing what yeah. crops up. I was, I actually, I don't, I did, I don't know which way you swipe. I'm, I'm happily, happily married many years. I don't even know. So I'll get the analogy wrong, but I was, I was musically swiping left and right like right. crazy. <laughs> there you go. Uh, well, left is no, right is yes in general. <laughs> oh, th- thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you, you've been married. How long have you been married? Uh, uh, so I've been married to uh, my wife, Linda, um, who some of people know my musical knows the drummer in my solo band and the baseball project. Mm-hmm. Linda, I've been married for, um, for 14 years now, together for 25. Nice. And making made, made a lot of records together 
Awesome. You guys have kids? No. Uh, records. Right. Records. There you go. Yeah. Crates. <laughs> crates and crates. Uh, you guys, uh, so that makes touring a hell of a lot easier for sure. <laughs> well, when we're, when we, well, it makes it we t- easier because we have toured together and do tour together, but it also mm-hmm. makes it easier because we both understand. And Linda is a lot of, um, a lot of other bands, mostly bands with, um, with Peter Buck and Scott McCoy. They have kind of the sort of the modern version of that Wadi Wachtel, um, I forgot the other guys, the section, that band, they, mm. they're, they're, I think they're Linda, Scott and Peter, and I think six bands together and they tour a lot. So we each know how much fun it is, how hard it can be. We can do it. You know, when we're together, we're, we enjoy it, but when we're apart, we also know what the other one is doing, going through. And that helps a lot. You know, there's, there's, you know, there, that's a good understanding. When I said earlier that everyone should know about what it's like, we both do quite well. Yeah, absolutely. When you started out your solo career, were you touring quite a bit with the first couple of albums, Kerosene Man and Dazzling Display? Oh, yeah. Constantly, all the time. Did yeah. What did touring look like for you at that point? I mean, it wasn't that far away from the end of Dream Syndicate first time, but um, um, how did touring change for you and sort of what attitude did you take with you on the road from a, just a perspective of like surviving this and, and staying, staying somewhat sane? Somewhat. <laughs> yeah. Somewhat being the key word. I mean, you know, it was a great time. When you're, we spoke earlier about, you know, starting out in music and having all the energy, you know, but not knowing what to do with it. Yeah. That period of time was great because I was still young enough to stay awake all night, every night. And, you know, and, and some said, hey, let's go. Um, there's a great bar down the street. And they close at four. I'd be the first guy saying, I'll be there. I will close that place down, wake up three hours later and play the show the next night. I don't do that anymore. That that's just not going to happen. But yeah. that, that was a great time where I I was old enough to do all, all do everything and young enough to appreciate it, which is yeah, a great literally thing. and that's yeah. literally yeah. And, and that's the thing, days yeah. of wine and roses when you could do uh, that. <laughs> yeah, more more wine than roses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, right. So yeah, just having more energy, being able to get out there, kind of doing it in a in a smart way. But was there a time? Um, what did that look like kind of a f- little farther on down the road when um, uh, when you were a little bit more experienced and had been on the road for quite a bit? Were you still enjoying it? Um, were you still just kind of getting off and playing in front of crowds? And um, what was that experience like for you as you moved along? Well, I, I love it. And that's why I do it so much. You know, I'm I can you know, I, I'm sure a lot of people. Um, I mean, I, I was reading the other day about um, about about Dick Dale, how he was suffering from cancer and had to keep touring just because he had to pay his medical bill, which is so sad. Yeah, and probably it's probably painful and, and not the first thing you want to be doing, but he had to do it. This is my job. I love. I mean, I, I tour. I play music for a living, which is, I still get excited saying that forty years later. That's yeah. I would never have imagined that. Yeah, it's great, but. Um, and, it, and it's, it's a great job, and I try to do it the best I can. But it's also, I really do enjoy it. It's something I really like. And I really enjoy everything about it. And I and when, when I talk about, you know, when I was maybe 25 or 30 or 35, what I enjoyed most was playing the music and then getting hammered and, you know, and, and having a good story to tell. And maybe what I like now about it is maybe more the music, but also, you know, God, I mean, cities... I, go, I get to go to great cities, which when I was younger, these cities to me meant being in a cool bar. And that means maybe if I have a spare hour, I can walk around the city for, you know, and discover a street I never saw before. Or, you know, or you know, maybe I'll wake up at six in the morning in Naples and walk till you know, 10 a.m. and hop in the van and be tired, but have a great experience. Yeah. So that, that's the way touring has changed for me. I still, you know, 
want to take it all in. I so and, and besides all that, there's music itself, which I think I appreciate now more more than ever in my life. I really enjoy the nightly challenge of trying to do something that's really, really better and different than you've ever done before. That that excitement when you walk off the stage and say, I didn't know I could do it that way. And that that's, was really that's cool. Amazing. Yeah, that's, that's really great. Cool. That's really cool to hear that it's still kind of this organic, growing, changing, evolving process for you, even today. Yeah, I mean, to, to, to get deep in the weeds, you know, whatever. I mean, Let's that's, do it. But, 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 you know, for example, this happened just at, at um, one of the last shows I played. We played the Bowery Ballroom in New York City, where, mm-hmm. right, where I live. I live here in New York. Yeah. It was a hometown gig. And um, that happened there, where, where during the, our Days of Wine and Roses set, you know, it's as t- when I started playing music, step back a few steps, but when I started playing in the Dream Syndicate, I was never a singer. I'd been in bands for a long time, but always as a guitarist. I was sort of a singer. I became the singer by default because, I don't know, for for a lot of reasons. But at that time, I didn't know how to sing. I just went out there and yelled it out. And over time, learned to be a better singer. Learned to sing from, you know, use my whole body and sing properly. And, you know, and put air behind it. All things you're supposed to do. Yeah. But on stage, just the other night at the Bowery Ballroom, I, on one of the songs from Days of Wine and Roses, I just sang from the neck up. No air, no no. I just I yelped it out like I might have in 1982, and the the light went off, and I said, "Oh yeah, that's how I used to sing these songs." And now, from the rest of this era, I'll be determined to sing them that way because it was exciting to sing. Yes, to sing those properly involves singing technically wrong, but that's the right vibe. Oh, and that's interesting. And, I, and I bring up that story because it, it shows, like, even after all these shows and years, something will happen on stage one night, and I'll think, "Ah, oh, yeah, I get it. I'm going to do that again the next night." And that's kind of what I live for. Not doing it the same way every night and just, you know, doing it over and over again, but trying yeah. to find some new little kernel of truth or awareness in what you do. Yeah. That's, that's really fun. cool. So wait, so it was a time when you were singing, when you were singing an older song that you sang in a way that of, of, of vocalizing that you hadn't really mastered at the time that that first song came out. And now you're trying to replicate that in kind of the bad way, quote unquote. Exactly. Exactly. Interesting. Oh, so <laughs> moving forward and learning more about singing sort of brought out the the uh, the idiosyncrasies and sort of deficiencies, for lack of a better word, of a prior stink singing style. But then you found yourself copying that going forward and finding and, those and, kind and, of kernels to like build on. That's interesting, Steve. And, and knowing and knowing how to how to do it, you know, how to copy it, you know. Yeah. That, that, and that was exciting. That that was that was a great a fun moment. Like, oh yeah, that's um. I, I just remembered how I used to do that, I, and I could, and I could, yeah. That that I like that. It's, it's method acting, I guess. You know, I'm, I'm I'm 22 again. You know, without without um all the bad stuff. Right, figuring out how to do it wrong in a good way. Yeah, which is which is a, which is a good thing. And I mean, one thing I've always felt when making when you're making well, probably in a lot of things in life, but definitely when you're being creative or making records or mm-hmm. you know maybe for you doing your show, is it better? Is not always best. I mean, you can. You know, maybe you can maybe do your show and do your best. Um, you know, I don't know. First thing came to mind, William F. Buckley. I don't know why, because I would pick a, a right wing commentator. But, but you, you do your best, you know, idea of somebody who's a super pro and you. But then you realize, no, the best way is to kind of find some way that might be slightly wrong in a really cool way. And that's what makes art and communication and he, being a human being special. Yeah. is when you find that that bit of humanity, you know, Leonard Cohen, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Those things where you do something wrong in a really cool way mm. that just makes everything great. 
doing everything wrong. It's the human experience. Mm -hmm. It's that yeah. humans yeah. are fallible. There's going to be things that are different and that you can always glean from a particular performance because art is life. Yeah, exactly. And vice, and right. vice versa to a certain yeah. extent, if you want to look at it correctly or right. if you want to look at it in that way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I don't want my, you know, I don't want my airline pilot to be an, an artist. I want him to do it. The right. I don't. I don't want my. my hey, I don't want my. That was a good landing. What would happen if it was a bad landing? Is that the analogy? Just drink. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. We're gonna have. Okay. So the disclaimer here is that we're just talking about art, people. You know. <laughs> I was safe going sixty miles an hour. What about a hundred? Sure. Why not? You know, <laughs> I, I'm a brain, I'm a brain surgeon, but I really want to be like, you know, a, a, an avant-garde, you know, painter. So I'm going to try to do it a different way. Yeah, no, you don't right, want that. Right. But for, for, but for creative things for, you know, for, for things where you're trying to communicate with people, showing that bit of humanity is great. That's more fun. Yeah. Be wrong in a good way. <laughs> It's part of the, what the, it's part, you know, I saw Father John Misty last night at Chicago Theater. It's, 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 it's puts himself out there so much. Like I know you do when you're on stage as well. And it's part of why people want to be in that room with a performer because they're showing their humanity. I mean, music is the sound of emotion and that's why mm -hmm. people go. And it doesn't have to be perfect. In fact, when it's fallible is even more interesting. I mean, look at what jam bands do. They put themselves and yeah. take themselves musically out on the edge night after night. And it's exciting and it's vibrant and it's not something that happens in the same way almost ever, I would, I would say. And, and I think that's kind of, a, is that a little bit of what you're saying is just that it's, it reflects the human condition really. It does. And, and that, what you said is very interesting because I think that that is one of the appeals of, of jam bands, of um, of also of jazz bands as well, um, of, mm -hmm. of, of free you know improvisational jazz bands. And yeah. with the dreams, with the Dream Syndicate, you know we have a couple songs we'll play every night. Um, one being John Coltrane's Stereo Blues from our second album, and another one being How Did I Find Myself Here five years ago. Mm -hmm. And those two are both very open ended, and they're both like in the case of bands to do that kind of thing. Some nights it works. Some nights it doesn't, some nights it's great, some nights it's not great, some nights it's nothing, you know. And, you know, but but I find that even when we're playing bad versions of the songs, people are there with us because they want to see where it's going to go. Yeah. And I think that, and, and and that's exciting, you know, even when we're not, just not, you know. A friend of mine once called that sort of feeling when it's not working, um, the feeling of going to a convenience store and looking at everything on the shelves and buying nothing. You know, it's like you're looking around for something and nothing looks good, so you walk out yeah. with nothing in your hands and but even when that happens i think people enjoy seeing you go through those that process of fishing around and i think i think i think maybe you know there's this hackneyed theory on this but i think because we all are not all sadly but most of us are, are empathetic people and um mm -hmm. and 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 somewhat caring and somewhat concerned about our fellow man in some way or not or maybe just um thrill seeking vicariously whatever reason it would be yeah we we are. We want to see other people in a situation. I'm not going to say in harm's way, but in a situation where you don't know how it's going to work out, or that relief of when it does. You know, like you said, you're a fan of jam bands. Okay, so am I. That feeling when you see a band and they're jamming, and all of a sudden they're fishing around, and then they work themselves back up to where 
the riff comes back in or the head of the song or the next verse. It's exciting to know how that's going to happen. Everyone screams. Everyone screams when that happens because they made it. They made it safely. I'm so (laughs) happy for them and for me too. And I think that's what's going on there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's that that amazing emotional rush where they, when they do, because you've been waiting for them to return back to that original riff for quite a while in a song, you know, for eight, 10, 12 minutes sometimes. (laughs) And then there's two parts a it's technically how in the fuck did he find himself back there and, I've, and then the subsequently i've been thinking that for like the last three to four minutes in that jam how is he getting back and yeah. is he thinking about get or she is he he or she thinking about getting back into it you know right and getting are they getting too way too far out there no they never get too far out there but yeah it's that excitement of this could fall you could fall on the face and on your face at any time it's that yeah. vul- the b- vulnerability um, not only from a musical perspective, but it also comes into play vocally as well. And you talked about that. It's just, it's, it's all, it's all part of that package. And, um, how do you talk to me about, um, being a performer out there from your perspective and what is your relationship with the audience? Kind of like from a big picture perspective, like the energy, uh, the feeling, knowing that you're playing for other people that they came to see you. Um, talk to me a little bit about what's going on in your head as far as that's concerned. Well, that's that, that's a huge part of the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I, but I, I, having said that, I have I look at I, I I do a lot of shows, a lot of solo shows. I play I play probably half the year at this point. I tour solo acoustic or solo electric, and half the year I tour with the band. Mm-hmm. And when I'm when I'm playing solo, I feel like I'm collaborating with the audience. I feel like we're we're the band, me and the audience. I'm there on stage, and second to second, minute to minute, I am. The, you know, I'm picking up on what they're doing, what they're feeling, and I'm reacting to them like I would with a bandmate. I'm, you know, the, mm. and that's what makes, to me, that's what makes a solo show great. I, I talk to them. I, I feel, I, I move the, the, the volume, the dynamic, the song choice, the, the way of playing it to what I feel in the room. Mm. When I'm playing with a band, it's the exact opposite. I mean, I know the audience is there and I want them to like it. But when I'm playing with a band on a good night, I'm all about me and the other guys on the stage. And what we're feeling off each other. And that's, you know, if I'm feeling good with my bandmates on stage, then the audience hopefully will dig it. But they don't. That's their problem. And I don't, I don't say that in a, in a cavalier way because I do care about our fans. But my thing is, our job here is to create something up here for you to enjoy and, 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 and witness and be there with us. And, you know, I, I think that a lot of music, well, a lot of everything, but definitely a lot of in music. A lot of it's a conversation. I mean, you imagine the band on stage mm-hmm. playing as a conversation. If you take that that type of way of looking at music to different kinds of music, think about heavy metal. And heavy metal is about a bunch of guys on stage. Their conversation is we're all puffing up and yelling to you in a way to make you feel puffed up too. With a jam band, the conversation is this one on stage. The you know the John Coltrane or Jerry Garcia, the band is up there saying something and his friends around him listening and nodding and saying, yeah, 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 keep going. And this, that's, that's how I look at performing as a band. You're up there having this conversation. And, you know, I think if you're, I'm, I'm taking this analogy is stretching way farther than, than I have to, but if, yeah. let's say if you have, if you're having a great late night conversation in a cafe with your, with a group of friends and you say, hang on a second, we should be aware of what the guy at the next table is thinking about our conversation. You're losing the thread. <laughs> so there's some of that, there's some of that involved. Well, are you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, so for me, I mean, whatever, whatever type of show I'm playing, it's all about communication. It's never about perfecting a routine mm. for me. 
Mm-hmm. It's about communicating either with the audience as a solo performer or with the band as a band member, but never about landing, you know, I'm, I'm nailing my landing, you know, about, about getting a 10 at the, from the Olympic judges. It's really about just some type of human contact was made and that's a good night. Yeah, no, I totally get that. Does that mean that when you're playing with the band that you're, um, and you're interacting with your band members, so you're looking for allies in what you're doing. When you're solo, your allies, the audience. When you're with a band, when you're playing with your band, the your allies are your your band members. It's a little bit of a different dynamic. However, when you're playing with the band, do you still feed off of the energy of the crowd, or is that kind of like an ancillary? Um, uh, effect that's occurring as you're playing with your band members. Like what I, I'm always interested in that performer audience dynamic and what that looks like and what that feels like from your own perspective. But um, I'm hearing that's a little bit different from, from what you're saying. Well, it, it's, I try, you know, I mean, I want you, you want people to be liking it. You want, you know, wild applause. You want people to feel like they're with you. Yeah. Um, I've tried over the years, and I'm not always good at this, but I tried to not need constant affirmation on stage when I'm playing with the band and know that we're doing something and they'll pick, they'll pick up on it. But of mm-hmm. course, you want people to like it, you know, and you, and you try to get, to, this goes back to what we were saying earlier about how different audiences in different countries, but different night tonight experience things in different ways. And hey, they may not be clapping or yelling or hooting and hollering, but they're really taking it all in. And that's, that, that's enough. That's good. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think what you don't want is like you know to feel like people are bored or talking the whole time and oblivious. You know, you're, you're just background. But I say all this, you know, and, and you got me thinking about it. But I say all this, but you, yeah, you want people to be enjoying it, of course. So when you're playing covers, for example, like on Out of the Gray, there's some old covers on there from like you know <laughs> you can look back like '85, '86 time where you guys are playing some redonkulous cut co- like like in a ridiculous yeah. monsters theme song papa Ro- yeah. rolling stone another brick in the wall brain damage pink floyd yeah, on the yeah. dark side of the moon low rider which was yeah. like, <laughs> um yeah. so are you guys playing so in essence carrying this analogy and keep keep just we're, we're running with this thing is that because you think it's cool or is that just because, or, or sort of, I, I guess, what's your philosophy on covers? Are you doing it because you love those songs and you want to play those songs with your band or is it part of the performance in, um, of itself? And I don't even know how many covers you guys are doing recently. Very few. So that's, I'm thinking that I rarely, I would say it's more I want, like I young guys you. goofing around because I, I guess that extended yeah. version on out of the gray is from like way back. Yeah. But young guys goofing around on that specific thing. I mean, <laughs> We, we just were, we, we went and make out of the gray. I think at that point we were all, the four of us were playing pretty well together, having fun together. And we just told the engineer, run the two track machine, which is the, the one that's not the multi, not the expensive two inch multi-track, but run the, the cheaper tape machine over there all the time. Just so we'll see what we get if we start jamming. Okay. And so that's why we started doing that kind of, I mean, I don't think we thought it'd be released ever, but this many years later, it was a fun artifact, but covers back then. Well, first of all, we didn't have as much material. So mm-hmm. we would yeah, tell right. a few covers. Yeah. In there. Yeah. yeah. There's always that. Yeah. Yeah. And also it goes back maybe a little bit to where we about earlier, where you want to show people what you like or what you're into or what you're, you know, what you're have an opinion about or whatever yeah, is part yeah. of the part of that thing. 
but I'm, I'm over intellectual. I think you just, we're just screwing off as far as that. That's a huge, cover, that's a huge part of it is like, I want to see a band play cover. I want to see what their influences are. You're going to see Tedeschi trucks band. They're playing Joe Cocker. They're from mad dogs and Englishmen and they're playing, yeah. uh, you know, Bob Dylan songs and they're playing, uh, almond brothers. And, and then they'll just come up with something. They'll play, uh, I don't know. They played Beatles. Uh, what do they play? They play something off of let it be. I forget what I think. Um, I got a feeling, you know, like what oh, is, great. what is it that moves you guys? Right. Yeah. And also, I mean, I've actually, during the pandemic, um, you know, everybody had their own thing. They, they did to keep it, keep engaged with themselves and with the world. And um, Linda and I, my wife and I, we, we did a, a lot of, um, like a lot of people, we did a lot of virtual shows. And we mm. started doing a lot of covers, more covers than we ever had. We did a ton of covers just to learn something, just to have a theme to the thing, just to have fun. Yeah. And, um, and I really enjoyed it. I was kind of like, this is, this is great. And I, I haven't yet brought that back into a show. All I will say, we we are part of a really, really great cover band here in New York called Remake Remodel, which is, you might guess from the title, is a Roxy Music, primarily a Roxy Music cover band. Me and Linda and Jason Victor from the Dream Syndicate. Mm-hmm. And also, strangely enough, a guy named Sal Maida on bass. And Sal was the bass player in Roxy Music for most of the 70s. Oh, nice. No, no so, so it's a fun band. And they made a and comeback I, too recently. They made a comeback too, and that's great yeah. as well. And I, um, but being a cover band is something I kind of, I'd like to do more of that. It's, it's actually fun. It's, it's challenging, but at the same time, I've got like four hundred songs I've recorded, so I, I feel like I want to play those every night. It, it, it's it is hey, fun. It, there's wait, only, wait, there's wait, only wait, one. Wait. There's only one solution for that, Steve. Three hour sets, man. Come on. Oh my god! But and and the Sadesky <laughs> the, the Trucks Band shows probably are probably about that long, right? They're probably pretty uh, long. A couple shows. hours. Couple hours. Couple hours. Two and a quarter. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, I got to do more of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I, I didn't get the Grateful Dead until I turned about forty. So I think clicked, and mm. at the, up up in that point, I always thought, well, why should I care about a band that's just up there doing a bunch of, you know, crazy covers half the time, doing "Not Fade Away." And you know, I, don't, I don't, I don't, I don't see the point. But then I realized covers are fun because that's a good way of sort of expressing yourself on a, a on you know without being tied into your own writing and your own words and your own, you know, your own vanity as a writer and just seeing where you can stretch something. So, so yeah, you're giving me ideas. Like a, I can do more of that. Yeah. 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 Sure. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, the dead was like purely from a musical standpoint and they took those covers and they just didn't play like not fade away, like one or two songs. I'm not saying that you said this, that they did this, but it becomes part of their own lexicon. I mean, I, I, I would assume if you walked around the grateful dead parking lot and asked who wrote not fade away, I don't know how many people would know. I mean, and that's just purely oh. conjecture, but just like to yeah. pose that idea, like, you know, they've taken, they, they've taken it and they, they made those their own. They didn't even Right, morning dew, for example. Good morning, little school right, girl. No, right. I mean going way back. You know, they didn't. Yeah, um, yeah, and it just becomes part of their show. Like, oh, knocking on heaven's door. Oh, that's not a dead song. Oh, well, they do it like every other night for their encore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, back back then it was also it was a way of being. Um, now I think about it, for a lot of the bands, it was also a way of being rebellious to play covers, a lot of covers, especially things that weren't cool. And you look at bands like The Replacements, we're doing tons of covers, you know, and, and w- which they would barely know just to kind of upend people's expectations of what they should be. And I remember back on the tour we opened for R.E.M. back in 84, mm-hmm. we played we played in Buffalo one night. And R.E.M. at that point, whether I don't even know the reason if they were just bored or at that point or having a bad day or a good day or whatever it was, yeah. they wouldn't play that Buffalo show and they played. You can look this up on, on, on setlist.com, but they played mm-hmm. almost enti- almost entirely covers. 
And I was loving it. I was, I watched it every night on that tour and I was at the side of the stage watching their set. Yeah. And I said, they're playing nothing but ABBA songs and Brownville Station and, and Fleetwood Mac songs. This is the best thing ever. I went out in the parking lot after the show, um, you know, opening band, hanging out with the fans in the parking lot. And I yeah, was yeah. out there and the, uh, a number of people came to me and said, hey, you're, you were in that opening band, right? I said, yeah, syndicate. They said, do you know, do you actually know R.E.M.? I said, yeah, they're, they're friends. So, well, tell them we're really pissed off at them. A bunch of covers. So we, we didn't we didn't pay to see that. Yeah, and right. It, There's it, that, it, too. It, there is it, that, it, too. It struck me because we what you get as a band, what, what makes you excited at any given show, people might come out and say, oh, my God, that's not not what I want. So what are you going to do? Are you going to try to figure that out every night? I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're probably get that a lot. Like, I mean, you feel like you need to play the songs off of Days of Wine and Roses, a couple of them. That's what you always say when you smile Halloween. I mean, I don't know. You probably get that from time to time. Thankfully, no. Thankfully, no. It's weird with our band. I think because ah. we've changed so much over the years and so, and taken so many left turns and zigzagged along the way, mm. I find, and it's kind of a blessing, it's, it's the blessing of not having had giant hits. I think we can do whatever we want every night, and it's mm. fine. Yeah, No one's going no to be too upset. Yeah, yeah. It's a nice place to be. Absolutely. Um, you... You've been touring for for forty years essentially, and it's changed quite a bit with today's technology. I mean, I don't talk to a lot of artists on this show that have like lived through the internet revolution during their entire massive career. Um, has that made things easier for you or for harder for you? I mean, and I just sort of reflect on the fact that you've done uh, a lot of it's sort of been a lot of DIY for you. You've done house shows and and such. Um, which becomes, which has been a hell of a lot easier with, uh, you know, internet apps and communication and, mm. you know, how is touring in this quote unquote, you know, postmodern world, um, changed for you from a technology perspective? I don't know. I mean, it hasn't changed that much as far as the way the music is and the way yeah, we yeah, perform. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, logistically and the way, in right. terms of like what touring yeah. looks like. Well, I do, you know, I, I've. You know, I have a very unpopular view that I, sh- I always have to buy my tongue because, you know, I don't see things like Spotify as a devil. Not I, I see it often their politics and things like Joe Rogan is problematic in a big way. Mm-hmm. But the idea, the idea let's, let's reduce, let's take the, the Spotify thing out of it. But, but as far as music being streaming, whether it's YouTube or Spotify or Apple or any of the file sharing, I think it's great because more people can hear what you do. And, you know, I don't, sure, we're all making less money. We're all... You know, we're we're giving it away for free for the most part. But the fact that somebody in you know a small village in you know in in Thailand or or Poland or or Alabama, you know, yeah. can 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 hear the music I make, whereas no local record store would ever cover it and have no, have no other way of hearing it. It's great for me. It's great for somebody like me who you know doesn't have that exposure. Um, in every nook and cranny of the world. Yeah. So I think it's great. So if you, know, if, you can if really you, craft if, your own, uh, your own creative output in a real, in a real significant way. Well, something we've all seen over time is that, I mean, it, it, is that a cool record store in a town or, you know, a cool college radio station can create a scene where it didn't exist. We've seen this, you know, when you, when bands say, why is every band playing, I'm trying to think of an example. Davis, where I went to school, Davis, California. Mm-hmm. Every band played. Every band played there in this little cow town because we had a great radio station, um, and so we got all the 
cool new wave and punk rock bands. And that's that kind of thing still exists. Well, I think it's it's back then you had to rely on the cool radio station, the cool record store. Now, just maybe one kid in a town hears your hears your music, loves it, and he does a house or he or she does a house concert show and invites all their friends. Like, boom, yeah. you've got a following. It's or great. he's an Instagram influence. He or she is an Instagram influencer, quote unquote, and like just post about your music, and then boom, all of a sudden you got a whole nother set of fans. It's nice, right? So that yeah. that for someone like me, that existing is is fantastic because you know I've, I've had to over the years beat my head against the wall to try to find ways to get people to hear my music outside of the the main cities where I would normally play. Now it's not so much that way. And I can play. You know, I'm 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 a touring monster. I love touring. I love playing live. You've gotten you've gotten that by now, and it means I can go to a lot of countries or states and play the smaller towns where nobody else would play because I can. And that's great. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing, Steve. Um, thanks again for being here, man. It's so exciting to talk to you. I'm, I'm glad we got to do this. I, I, I enjoy your, I enjoy the conversational style. Yes. We were, we were jamming for an hour and a half. We were, we, we were, man. We were <laughs> totally. And we didn't we do any, I don't think we did any covers. I'm not sure. I mean, um, talking about maybe. a record that was put out 40 years ago, uh, you know, qualifies for that, but I don't think so though, man. I think um, we covered. Le- I think we covered Lester Bangs and Louie at one point, but we didn't know it. Did, I don't know if we mentioned Lester Bangs <laughs> or Chris Gow, who liked your al- who <laughs> liked the album originally, but of course, you know, took you down for the Velvet. Who's probably the the original Velvet Underground person? Yeah, that's a that, that's a long story in itself. <laughs> <laughs> well, for another we, time, <laughs> we can cover that in part two. For part man. two, <laughs> let's cover that when I, I hopefully I can I can catch up with you at Lincoln Hall when you're in town, man. I would love that. Please do. Yeah, I'll, I'll see you there for sure. I'm, I'm, I'm easy to find, so come up and yeah, say hi. Yeah, really uh, really looking forward to that show. Uh, congratulations on the 40th anniversary of Days of Wine and Roses and, of course, a new album, Ultraviolet Hymns and True Confessions, which I really love, and I encourage everyone to go out and, and listen to it and go to Steve's website and find out all about his tour dates. This guy is amazing and awesome, man. You are, you're, you're, you're awesome, Steve. You're, it's a, it was a pleasure to talk to you, and you're just a, a treasure. I'm so glad you're around. Thank you, Josh. It's very kind. Of. I've enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks so much, man. Cheers. Okay. See you soon. Okay, that was me talking with the amazing Steve Wynn of the Dream Syndicate, celebrating the 40th anniversary of their amazing debut album back in 1992, The Days of Wine and Roses. And also, uh, they just produced a new album, came out with it. It came out back in June entitled Ultraviolet Battle Hymns and True Confessions. So glad that Steve uh, wanted to come by and uh, and chat with me. I was uh, so glad to talk with him about the formation of Dream Syndicate, what that meant to him, what that means to him today. And, uh, you know, they only they broke up after a couple of years, uh, subsequent, uh, like two albums, after the days of wine and roses said touring really did them in. Uh, and I hear that a lot, you know, it's just so hard to be out there so difficult and, uh, it really, really takes a toll, but, um, you know, to go really back to that amazing, uh, 
debut album. It was so critically acclaimed, but many critics uh, at the time, as you heard, um, criticized Steve for and the band for ripping off the Velvet Underground. And Steve, of course, comes back and says, hey, we ripped everyone off. And I, I love that spirit. I love that Steve is still uh, super excited about music. Obviously, he's had a long and illustrious solo career and then has come back with the Dream Syndicate and more recently. And this latest album is just absolutely amazing. And you can hear the excitement. You can hear this in the interview. Uh, I just had such a great time talking to him. And it was really, for me personally, it was an amazing interview, uh, an opportunity to talk to someone that, um, that was such an integral part for me of my own musical development and kind of connect the dots with him uh, of the neo-psychedelic Paisley Underground movement at the time. Uh, so happy that Steve kind of never tires about talking about that album. And I didn't even know that it was recorded in one night from like midnight to 8 a.m. at a small studio in East Hollywood. That was really, really amazing. But Coming back to today, that Steve is just so interested in being relevant. He so loves music. He loves what he does. He loves creating. Uh, he says he's still learning and still evolving, and he's always trying to learn something new. And when I, you know, when I talked to him about the band and audience reaction, how he talked about, uh, you know, that it's he says it's all about communicating either with the audience or with other band members, but it's never about perfecting anything. So there's kind of like this goal that's out there that is music itself, but that you really never achieve a particular goal because, and but the beauty is really in the voyage. The beauty is in that process of getting there and creating music without necessarily uh, getting to that particular goal and always striving and reaching and being curious about being there. And that sort of encapsulates what Steve's vibe is. And it's just an exciting person to talk to. And it's really exciting to see live as well. Uh, Again, for you Chicago people, on November 11th, they're playing at Lincoln Hall. Uh, I'll definitely be at that show. Please come and say hi and come see the Dream Syndicate perform a number of their songs from the most recent iteration of the band from 2017 on, and of course, play Days of Wine and Roses. It's going to be just amazing. And uh, and Steve, just an amazing guy. I was so happy to have him here. Uh, so happy to have you all along for the ride. I really appreciate each and every one of you for listening. Thank you so much for being here. And I want to send a special thank you and shout out to the amazing Steve Wynn of the Dream Syndicate for being here on this episode of Road Case. Thanks again so much for listening. And I'd like to encourage everyone to get involved with Roadcase. You can do so in a number of different ways. You can email me at info at roadcasepod.com with questions, comments, and even suggestions for guests. Or you can follow us on the socials, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We're at RoadcasePod. And we have a YouTube channel called Roadcase Podcast. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platform. And if you could please rate and review the podcast while you're there, that would be great. So I want to thank Waltzer for this awesome theme music that we have. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to Roadcase. We have a lot of great episodes coming up, so I'll see you on down the road. <laughs>